1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Father, speak to your church this morning as we dig into this text, as we study who you are and what you say about us, Father. Would your spirit work in our hearts? Would you work through me to speak well, to say what needs to be said? Lord, that you be glorified in our worship this morning. Be with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So Uncle Craig already made a plug for men's group, but it's a great time, and for the men, I'd recommend joining us, and we spend a time in discussion. Usually somebody leads the discussion, and it's always a fruitful time, a good time. And a number of weeks ago, our friend Jacob led the discussion. And at one point, he said that his favorite word in the Bible not his favorite verse or chapter or story. His favorite, one of his favorite words in the Bible is the word but. And it wasn't some tongue-in-cheek joke that would make Sir Mix-a-Lot smile. No. The word but, the conjunction, a three-letter word. Much like the word therefore that Uncle Craig referenced, the word but causes us to think of what came before and what comes after. Right? The conjunction is defined as a word used to introduce a phrase or clause, something contrasting, or a clause contrasting with what has already been mentioned. So in our text this morning, Peter says, but you, and he's drawing our attention to what he said previously, and he's drawing to our attention to what he's saying next. Peter, I mean, Peter, Leo last week did an excellent job breaking down verses four through eight. He talked about Jesus as the cornerstone but he also said something that's key to understand, saying that there is no neutral response to the gospel. Either you believe or you don't believe. Either Jesus is the cornerstone upon which you are built on, or he's the cornerstone that you stumble upon and are put to shame. There is no middle ground. It's black and white. And that passage ended, Peter saying, that there are those who stumble. They disobey the word as they were destined to. And it goes into the text today saying, but you. Saying that's them, but the church is something totally different. He says, but you are a chosen race. He uses Old Testament language, pointing us back to the story of the patriarchs, how God created the nation of Israel and chose them, and he applies it to the church today. I'm sure most of us are somewhat familiar with the Old Testament story of God choosing Israel, establishing them as a people. We have God creating the world, the universe. He creates mankind. Mankind falls. God chooses to spare mankind. He doesn't wipe them off the face of the planet. Mankind repopulates the earth, and sin flourishes. And so God chooses to save Noah and his family from the flood. And then mankind repopulates again and grows and grows and nations grow. And God chooses a man named Abram, a man amidst the pagan people. And God says, I'm going to take this man, I'm going to make a covenant with him and promise to make a people through this man. 
He makes a covenant with Abram, names him Abraham, and says, through you I will bless the nations. He gives him a son named Isaac. Isaac then has two twins, or set of twins, I mean, Jacob and Esau. And the story of Jacob and Esau is a very interesting, but again, we see God choosing one and not the other. Malachi, in his prophecy, begins quoting God saying, yet I have loved Jacob and Esau I hated. And that's a weird text for us, and that deserves its own sermon someday. I think a, long, a couple years back, we went through Malachi, and we spent some time with this passage, and it's a loaded passage, it's a heavy passage, but again, he says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And then Paul in Romans explains this to us, what it means, what God is doing with these twins. Paul says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Paul says God chose Jacob before he did any good deeds, any bad deeds, before he was even born. Why? It wasn't because he was better than Esau. If you look at the story of Jacob and Esau, you kind of see that Jacob probably isn't the most reliable guy. He's a little bit of a trickster, a little untrustworthy. Probably not the guy you would have chosen to create your nation with. Yet God chooses him in spite of who he is. And it's not as though God, we talked about this a while ago when Leah was talking about election in the first few verses of the chapter, chapter 1, or when Raymond was talking about it. It's not that God looked down the corridor of time and saw, okay, Jacob eventually will become a great man, so I'm going to choose him to make a nation. No. God chose Jacob for his purpose. Paul tells us that whenever God chooses anybody, it is an act of mercy, and that he's just in doing so, and that it is according to his plan. So God chooses Jacob. He renames him Israel. And through, <clears throat> through Jacob, or Israel now, and through the sons of Israel, the 12 sons, he creates the 12 tribes of Israel. And then God in Isaiah speaks of Israel, saying, my chosen people, to whom I, the people who I formed myself. God says, these are my people who I chose, who I formed. And in Deuteronomy 7, we have an explanation of why God chose them, to what end. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, it says, the Lord God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. Just like God didn't choose Jacob because he was better than Esau, he didn't choose Israel because they were better than the next nation. It wasn't because they were bigger, more prosperous, more moral. No, God said he chose them out of his love, and out of a promise to fulfill a plan that he had enacted. Now, thinking back to our text this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter has this story of Israel and God sovereignly choosing them in mind and applies it to the first century church. He applies it to us. He says, you are a chosen race. This promise of Israel being a chosen race now applies to the church. And we are not a chosen race in the ethnic sense that the Jews were, but we are a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, right? Haole, Hapa, some of our local brothers here, right? <laughs> All of us are a chosen race. 
We are the church of God. We are his people. God didn't choose Jacob because he was better than Esau, and he didn't choose Israel because they were better than the next nation. So he doesn't choose any of us because we are more moral, more righteous, or to reserve it more than the next person. That's something that we should always remember when considering the doctrine of election. People who don't like the doctrine of election will often say that, oh, these people who believe it, they put themselves on a pedestal, they think they're better, oh, they're so special, God chose them and not somebody else. But in reality, the Bible says something very different. That none of us deserve it. That we are not better than anyone, yet God in his mercy has chosen us and made us his own. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And being of him, you are in Christ Jesus. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul says God did not choose us because we're wise, because we're powerful, or of some noble or royal birth. On the contrary, the assumption is that we are weak, foolish, lowly, and despised. Yet God loves us, he chooses us, and says we are his chosen race, his people. It's important for us to remember this, again, this humbling aspect of election, that we are not better than the next person. Next, Peter goes on to another title to the church. He says, a royal priesthood. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And now this one might be a bit of a head-scratcher for us. We don't have priests serving here, offering up sacrifices. We might know a little bit about the, the Old Testament priesthood or some religions that still use priests. But I want to spend some time a little bit in the Old Testament just so we see what the priesthood was and what Peter has in mind for us. The most simple definition I could probably come up with for who a priest was or who priests were is a people set apart for service. In the Old Testament, not any Jew could be a priest. They had to be from the tribe of Levi, and even then, not every Levite could be a priest. At Mount Sinai, God ordained Aaron and his descendants to be priests, and them alone. Nobody else could perform the priestly duties and God was so serious about this that we see at one point in 1 Samuel where King Saul tries to act as this and perform a priestly duty himself in offering a burnt offering. He's impatient. He doesn't want, he's not waiting for Samuel to come do it, so he wants to do it on his own. And Samuel comes later and tells him that he has sinned, that for what he's done, God will eventually strip the kingdom from him, that this wasn't his act to do. Even though the offering might have been a good intention, this was for the priests only to do, not for Saul. We could spend a ton of time going through the qualifications and duties of the priests, but I want to do a quick run-through. We could spend some time in Leviticus 21-22 to look at the qualifications for these priests. For an example, in 21-18, we see that for no one who has a blemish shall draw near. 
a man blind or lame, or one who has mutilated a face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, and he goes on and on. They had to be perfect. They'd be the descendants of Aaron, they'd be Levites, but they had to be perfect with no blemish, nothing wrong with them. The priesthood was a special group of people. Their qualifications were down to the smallest detail. Barnes Bible Charts, you can Google online, they do a really good outline of who the priests were and corresponding texts of their qualifications and duties and all of it. It's a nice, concise little chart that is really helpful to kind of get an understanding of the priests. But a quick rundown of the qualifications. Like I said, they had to be males of the descent of Aaron between 30 and 50 years old. No imperfections, no defects at all. They must have a proper marriage outlined by God. They couldn't just marry anybody. They couldn't have any disease, any uncleanliness. They couldn't even trim their beards or cut their, or shave their heads. And they had to be properly dressed. These guys couldn't show up to the temple with some locals in board shorts after a day at Pines. God himself designed specific attire for these men to wear and to serve him. Earlier, I defined priests as a people set apart to serve. So some of their duties fall into the fact that they'd bless the people and bless God. They'd maintain the tabernacle, take care of it. They'd burn incense. They'd assess impurities in the people. They'd act sometimes as judges to settle disputes within the nation. And they would teach the people and they would offer sacrifices on behalf of themselves and on behalf of the people. And then you had the high priest who was above them all, sometimes called the chief priest. And he had even higher qualifications and even more important duties. In Leviticus 16, we, we see the outlining of, of a holiday called the Day of Atonement, where the high priest alone had to perform a service on behalf of the people. He had to wash himself, cleanse himself. He'd be perfectly clean. He had to take on a tired purpose just for this moment, clean, exactly this only clothes that he could wear. And he had to enter in, and he had into the holy place where only he could go into himself. And he had to butcher a bull on his behalf to atone for his sins and the sins of his family. And then he would butcher a, a goat for the sins of the people. And God was so serious about this process. It was a symbol to, to show the sins of the people, to remind the people of their sins, and to show the atonement, that, that, that the cost for sin is blood, that this is what they deserve, but we are sacrificing these animals. And a whole sermon could be given on just that and how Jesus ultimately fulfills that. But God was serious about this process for the high priest, that if he made any mistake, any negligence, anything went wrong, God would strike him dead. So you get the picture. The priests were a special people set apart. They weren't just any Jews. They had to be perfect in every way and set apart by God to perform this service. And so what does... Peter mean for us when he calls us priests and royal ones at that? Is this what he has in mind? Are we to rebuild a temple and enter in as these priests wearing a specific attire, performing specific duties? Simply put, no. We are priests just as those men were priests, but our, the outworking of our priesthood is different. The letter to the Hebrews shows us the inadequacies of that old sacrificial system and the priesthood. And it ultimately points to Jesus as the high priest who abolished all that. 
In Hebrews 10, verses 3 through 4, the author says, But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He says those sacrifices and those acts did not have an eternal reach. They ultimately would not save these people from their sins. And then he goes on to say, Every priest stands daily at a service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But then, another one of these buts that come in here. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The Old Testament priesthood was a regular, daily, and then yearly process where sacrifices had to be offered over and over and over. And the author of Hebrews says that at the end they didn't pay for sins, but then Jesus himself came as the ultimate high priest, offered up himself as that sacrifice, and said it is finished, and went and sat down at the right hand of God, saying that system is abolished. In Hebrews 10.14, he says again, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those who are being sanctified, that's us, the church, the people of God. And remember those qualifications for the priesthood, how perfect they had to be, no blemish, nothing wrong. It says that Jesus, by his single offering, has perfected us. He's made us perfect. He has cleansed us. He's made us worthy of the calling to be a priest. Once for all time, Jesus performed the ultimate priestly duty in offering himself for us as a sacrifice that we would be saved and that we would be made perfect. So Jesus abolishes the Old Testament priesthood and fulfills the promise of God in Exodus 19. God, looking forward in time in Exodus 19, promises to the Israelites that they shall be, he says, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Peter takes that promise and says that promise is realized right now in the church. It is no longer a future promise, but this is right now for you. So what are our priestly duties? Right? We don't do the same sacrifices. We don't have the temple. We don't wear those special garments. We don't grow our hair out and not trim our beards. Leo touched up on this last week a little bit in verse 5, where Peter says, You yourselves, like living stones, are built up as a spiritual house to be a royal pri- or holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. We offer up sacrifices in our in our Christian lives, but they are not the same kind that the Old Testament sacrifices were. They're spiritual sacrifices. Kelly Capick describes the Christian priestly duties in two facets. He says, we live sacrificially for others. Offering up spiritual sacrifices means we put others before us. We imitate the sacrifice of Jesus daily in our lives. This means we live in a way that puts others before us. We humble ourselves sacrificing our desires, our goals, our aspirations. We do this for the good of our neighbor, for the good of the church, and for the glory of God. He says, secondly, we perform our priestly duties in that we offer intercession on behalf of others. The church, the Christian, has special communion with God that the world does not. God has revealed himself to us. He has made us, he's brought us in. And we have a responsibility to pray for the lost, to care for the lost, to bring them the message. We intercede for them on their behalf, crying out to God, you and I cannot save them. 
We can't change those, per, those people. We can't do anything but God can. And so we pray for them. We bring them the gospel. We love them. So the question for us would be, Christian, are you performing your priestly duties? There's these two facets, but if you look, remember the definition I gave earlier, that is the people set apart for service. And another commentator said that in regards to this, that all of us serve. We perform our priestly duties in the way we serve the church, in the way we serve God. All of us have gifts to serve in a different way, whether it's serving in keiki, whether it's on the worship team, whether it's standing up in here speaking, whether it's helping with setup or teardown. All of us have a gift from God to serve him and serve the church. That's how we perform our priestly duty. Are you doing that? Do you see the gravity in which God has put, or the responsibility in which God has put on you as a believer to serve him through your gifts, regardless of what they are? That we don't need to be that high priest, that perfect person doing everything or doing the highest of duties, but we could serve him in our own way, offering up spiritual sacrifices in whatever area we can. Next, Peter gives us two more titles, and they've kind of been addressed a little bit in the Old Testament text we've already read. But So he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. These go hand in hand with being a chosen race and a royal priesthood. Peter calls us a holy nation and a people for God's own possession. A couple months ago, Andrew preached on the holiness of God and Peter's call to the church to be holy as God is holy. And I wish we could spend more time there, but I'd be preaching here to like three, and I don't know if we want that. So I'd recommend going back and listening to Andrew's sermon. We're just doing a case study on the holiness of God through Scripture, seeing how greater and other than he is than anything we know. But along with that, throughout Scripture, there's a call, a common thread for the people of God to be holy as their God is holy. You look at Leviticus, and there's law after law after law that the Jews had to follow, what they wear, what they, what they could wear, what they couldn't wear, when they could work, when they couldn't work, <clears throat> all the rituals and sacrifices they had to perform to be clean, to be holy. There's a lot they had to do. And I don't know if any of you know, I don't know if I see him this morning, but Stephen Paz from church here. I've never met someone who loves the book of Leviticus the way he does. I'm pretty sure it's his favorite book. He always talks about it. When I told him what, I, what the passage I had this week, he was like, oh, are you going to talk about Leviticus? I was like, oh, yeah, I'll probably talk about a little bit of Leviticus. But go talk to him. Find him. He loves that book so much. He knows it probably better than anybody I know. But in Leviticus 20, God says to Israel, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. I have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. And that's what Peter has in mind. God calling his people to live in holiness and reassuring them that they belong to God. And this call for holiness is reaffirmed in the New Testament. As Israel was, ca was called to be holy and set apart from the pagan nations that they were around, so the church is called to be holy and set apart from the secular world we live in. 
This does not mean that God takes us and plucks us out of our situations, that we go hide, that we don't talk to unbelievers, that we don't talk to our communities around us, right? We don't go just live in monasteries, practice asceticism, and ignore those outside of the church. No. There's a passage in Scripture that's called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. It's in John 17, and Jesus, before going to the cross to be crucified, stops and prays to God. He prays for his disciples, and he prays for us. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus' prayer here has a few things that apply to our text today about being holy and about about belonging to God. First off, in the prayer, we see that Christians belong to God. And it's a different belonging. God created everything. He holds everything in the palm of his hands. In a sense, everything belongs to God. But Jesus prays for us because the Christian has a special belonging to God. Jesus prays that God would protect us, that he'd keep us from the evil one, that he'd care for us. Second thing we see in this prayer is that we are holy, set apart from the world, but not taken from the world. Jesus says, as I am not of the world, they are not of the world, right? Saying we are apart, we are different, we are holy unto God. But he also calls or prays that God wouldn't remove us from the world, but leave us in the world we live in, that we would serve a purpose. He says that they are being sanctified in truth. We are being made holy. But God does not remove us from our everyday lives, from those around us, from the people who need the gospel. On the contrary, God has set us apart to be holy to God so we can go back into that world and fulfill the purpose of God. And we'll get back to that purpose in a minute. But I want to address how this is all possible. Peter has given us an identity in this passage. He has told us who the church is. He's pointed out that the church is different and set apart from those who reject God. Peter does not say... I'm sorry. Peter says we're different, we're set apart. This is our identity. And the one thing that we notice is none of this is conditional. God doesn't say, if you do this, then God will choose you. If you do this, then God will make you a royal priest. Or if you do this, you will be holy, and God will call you his own. No. He's saying right now, this is what applies to the church of God. A lot of these promises, or a lot of these titles, are future promises that God tells Israel. He says, I've chosen you, and you will be a kingdom of priests. You will be a holy nation. But Peter says, no, right now you are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And he supports this in verse 10 using a story out of Hosea. I don't know if you remember, if you were here with us back in the fall, but we were going through Hosea. And the story of Hosea is a prophet named Hosea, right? And he's called to marry a prostitute named Gomer. 
And so he does. He loves her. He cares for her. He provides for her. But Gomer drags his love through the mud. She turns back to her sin, to her old ways. Eventually she gives birth to children. God tells Hosea to name them. First one, Eloami, which means not my people. And the other one, Lodokama, which means no mercy. And the story goes on, and Hosea is called to love and care for her and provide, and she keeps returning to her sin, neglecting him, her, his love. Eventually, Hosea has to even buy this woman back on an auction block. And we learn, ultimately, that this story of Hosea and Gomer is a, is a symbol to show us the story of God and his people Israel, that God has chosen her, made her his own. He's provided for her. He's cared for her. He's called her to be holy and set apart, to be his own. But Israel has dragged God's love through the mud. She's turned from him, pursued idols. She's taken the call to holiness and pushed it away. To be set apart pushes it away and goes and lives and intermingles with the pagan nations and takes on their practices. And the remarkable thing about this, this story in Hosea is that God doesn't ultimately cut them off, but he gives a promise. He says, one day, I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to, my, to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Peter says that this promise is fulfilled in the church. Again, this is a promise looking forward. God says, one day, no mercy will have mercy, and not my people will be my people, and they will say, you are our God. One day. And Peter takes that. says what God was saying then, right now, directly applies to the church. That the church are God's people. That God has shown mercy on the church, and they are his. Again, it's important to remember this doesn't elevate us above others. It doesn't give us some special pedestal or distinction above others. We are not better than the next person just because God has done this. God in his mercy has saved us and made us his own. The last few words in verse 9 tell us that God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see that this is all possible because of the gospel. We who were not a people were once living in darkness and in sin. Yet God has called us out of that darkness into his marvelous light that we might be his people through the work of Jesus. Ultimately, the work of Jesus is what does this for us. God's promises are fulfilled through the work of Jesus to the church. So now Jew or Gentile can be a people in the church of God, regardless of who they are, where they're from. All the titles the peoples of, to the people of God, the promises of the kingdom of God to the Old Testament patriarchs are realized in the church today through the work of Jesus. And coming to a close, I want us to look at the center of these two verses. I don't know if you've noticed, but if you've been keeping track, I've kind of preached around one line here. We talked about how God has chosen us, how he's made us a priesthood, how he calls us holy, how he's had mercy on us and called us his own, how he's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this is the identity of the church. This is who you are. 
but much like in other places in 1 Peter here. Peter gives us our identity, who we are as a church, and there's a call to action. So there's a purpose. He doesn't just give us identity or just morality, but he gives us both. He says, this is who you are, this is how you should live. The second half of verse 9 reads, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The titles of the church sandwich this phrase. God has told us who we are, and now he's telling, Peter has told us who we are in Christ, who we are as a church, and here he's calling us what we are to do in amidst all of it. Our identity as the people of God should pour out in our proclamation of who he is. Right? He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. Our identity as the people of God should, should pour out in our proclamation of who he is. Consider what Peter is saying. He's told us that we are a people set apart, different. Again, we've been chosen. We are a royal priesthood. We are holy, a people of God's own possession. Through the gospel, he's called us out of darkness into Mars light, and he's made us his own. And is it, not, it is not of our own doing. It's not something that we do ourselves, that we could boast in ourselves, but it is the work of God through Christ. It's not because we are better than the next person, not because we did anything to deserve it or because we've collected enough brownie points or won that golden ticket, as it were. Because God has loved us and had mercy on us and it's according to his plan and his will. This is who the church, the church is, the people of God. The question is, do we live like it? Considering our identity, who we are, do we live according to the purpose of God and his call for us? Peter says, God has done these things that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. Do you and I do that? That's what we're doing here this morning. As we gather, as we sing, as we worship, as we teach, as we're in the word, we're proclaiming the excellencies of God. We, pro we proclaim him as we partake in communion, remembering what he's done for us, the body broken, the blood shed. We proclaim him as we give. We are to proclaim him as we leave this place and go into our everyday lives. Later this evening, we're going to be baptizing a few of our churchgoers here. And that's what that is. Those who are being baptized, what you are doing in baptism is proclaiming the excellencies of God, saying he has called me out of darkness into marvelous light. I was dead, but in Christ I'm alive. This is what baptism is. And as a church, we come together and celebrate that in joy glorifying God and what he's doing in the lives of these people. We're to proclaim the excellencies of God in everything we do. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We're to do everything, proclaiming Jesus, proclaiming God. It's our identity as a church, we are holy, a priesthood, chosen, people who have received mercy, people who have been called out of darkness into the light, and we are to live accordingly. We are to live proclaiming the message of the gospel in all that we do. Because the assumption here in this text, right, we reference that but, that this is the church, but there are those who are not the church. They're the lost. 
They need the message of the gospel. They need to know Jesus. And so we proclaim, we worship God, we preach the gospel to them, pointing them to Jesus, the one who does all this on our behalf, who makes us this people, not because we are better than them. Right? Saying we have been called out of darkness in a marvelous light is the assumption that we were in that darkness as well. We used to live apart from God, not knowing him, yet he has called us from that into his light, that we would know him, that we'd worship him, that we'd be the people of God. Odds are there's people in this room who might still be on that other side, who might still be in darkness, who might not know their God, who have not repented of their sins and cast themselves on the cornerstone that is Jesus. We plead with you. The message of the gospel is simple. You're a sinner. Right now, you are separated from God. But Jesus himself offered that sacrifice to perfect you, to make you his own, to bring you into the people of God that you might proclaim him alongside with us. All of us were once there. We were all once lost, yet God saved us. And he could do that with you. He's calling you from darkness into light. So believe on Jesus. Church, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for the encouragement we find in its pages, the identity that you have given us, the church. Lord, you've told us who we are in you. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart for God. We thank you for the message of the gospel and that you've done this in our lives, Lord. Help us to live like it. Help us to enjoy, proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. Lord, that our lives would be one big act of worship. We'd serve you in all that we do. We'd worship you in all that we do. Lord, they'd be glorified in our lives. In these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.